We, uh, we are all familiar, I believe, with celebrity endorsements. We all know some company or some organization that uses a well-known individual to push their product or to raise funds or to rally fans to their organization or brand. And it's really nothing new. People have been doing this for centuries. All the way back in the 18th century, there was a China a Chinaware company that actually used the royal family as an endorsement for their Chinaware. Over the next hundred years, people started to put uh, what they called trade cards in with the products that would show someone who was well-known and using their product as a way to sort of give credibility or status to their product. And then, of course, as we enter into the 20th century, people began to turn to athletes and eventually to movie stars all the way to where we are today where uh, economists tell us that this would be a $50 billion industry at the end of 2020. And the idea has always been that if you can find someone who is successful or powerful or even attractive or, or has some sort of status, that that status gives them credibility that they can then transfer to your product. And of course the endorsement is only as good as the trust that you invest in the person who is endorsing it. And that trust is a direct influence of how you judge their integrity and their overall morality. Now, I have to admit, I don't really understand it. I don't know very many people or any famous people who, whose endorsement is going to persuade me to part with my money to buy something that I didn't already want or need. But I can tell you there's somebody who could do that. There's somebody who, whose moral standing and integrity is so immense that anything they had to say about anything or anyone would immediately give it credibility. It would be taken at face value. That person, of course, is God himself. If he were to endorse some organization or if he were to endorse some action, and certainly if he were to endorse some individual, it would immediately give full credibility to that person in not only my eyes, but in the eyes of many. Well, this is exactly what happened in one of the most incredible events that ever took place in the history of the world. God actually gives a verbal endorsement and affirmation of someone. That person is, of course, Jesus Christ, and the event is His baptism, and that is our focus this morning out of the Gospel of Matthew here in Matthew 3. Beginning in verse 13, Matthew records the baptism of Jesus Christ, and in this passage, we find this remarkable endorsement and affirmation from God Himself for Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just God the Father who endorses Jesus. We also see God the Holy Spirit and even the prophet John the Baptist, all of them giving their unqualified endorsement of Jesus Christ as none other than God's promised Messiah, God's promised Savior for the world. A threefold testimony we might say, to the authenticity of Jesus Christ. Now listen to me as I read this, this account of, uh, that Matthew records for us here in verses 13 through 17. Matthew says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, 
heaven, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now just to remind you of the setting here, this was... This was well into John's ministry, which Luke tells us started in the 15th year of Tiberius, the emperor of Rome. We know that uh, Tiberius began his reign in 14 AD, so 15 years after that, we're in 29 AD. And here is John, who has been ministering now for probably some six months out in the desert. He appears, as it were, out of nowhere. He grew up, really, in the desert in obscurity. But he, he rises, if you will, in the consciousness of the people. And Matthew's already told us back in verse 5 that all of Jerusalem and Judea and all the surrounding regions were flocking to him. The Jewish historian, as we saw last time we were in Matthew, the Jewish historian even talks about this. Thousands and thousands of people flocking to John to hear him preach and to, to receive his baptism. John launches his ministry in the wilderness. He's preaching a strong and a harsh message of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is about to arrive. He's confronting people. He's challenging people. Many people are responding. They would have come for days, you remember. It would have been 70 miles for some of them. They would have walked for several days to get out to the point in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptizing people and a tremendous amount of esteem that this showed for them as they would make all of that effort. At the same time, Matthew tells us, that Jesus also made His way to the Jordan. He came down from Nazareth, actually from Galilee, southeast from where He lived, a small village, a hundred or so people, or a couple hundred people, I should say. A little village that was, you might say, at the end of a dead-end road, up a hill. No one would ever visit it. It was one of the most obscure places that you could ever uh, imagine. And here he is. He has been raised for 30 years himself in relative obscurity in the home of Joseph and his mother Mary, who... Uh, was married to Joseph. Joseph was, of course, a builder. It could be a carpenter or a mason or whatever, but Jesus had grown up in that environment. But now, at the age of 30, the Lord has raised up this prophet, John the Baptist, and he begins to preach this message of readiness, uh, beginning to preach a message of preparation, getting people ready for the coming of the kingdom. And, and in doing that, he says, he's fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. Prophecies of Isaiah and Malachi, even back to Exodus. Prophecies and promises that God would send a messenger ahead of the Messiah to prepare the way for the people. So Jesus hears about this ministry and He makes His way south, a couple of days walk even for Him. And this is going to be a critical turning point, a critical milestone in His life and in John's. He'd make His way to John's baptism and from that point forward, his life would never be the same. He would never return to his former life as a builder, to his former quiet life in Nazareth. From this point on, he comes out of the shadows of obscurity, thrust into the center stage, not only for Israel in his day, but for all of eternity. And this happened, this event, all of it, 
centered, or I should say, uh, focused on the baptism of Jesus at this point in time. Because his baptism, this, this ceremony, if you will, that he participated with, immediately trumpeted to all the world his genuine identity. It came with such eminent voices that there would be no way for Jesus to go back from this event into relative obscurity. Of course, this was all part of God's plan from the very beginning, to introduce, to anoint Jesus for the following years of His ministry. And so what we have here in this passage is really a threefold testimony, a threefold witness to the nature, to the identity of Jesus Christ as the true Son of God, as the true Messiah, as the true Savior of the world. And of course, we know from the law of Moses that every fact and every truth is established by the voice of two or three witnesses. Even in our own law courts today, we give great credibility to two or three witnesses. Well, here you have three of the most credible witnesses the world could ever know, all of them uh, testifying to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Now, the first of those witnesses we find here in verses 13 through 15, and that is the affirmation of John the Baptist. Now, John was one of the most popular people of his day, and if you're going to introduce someone, if you want him to have immediate credibility, you couldn't ask for anyone better than John. You remember Jesus' words about John in Matthew 11, 11. Jesus said that among those born of women, no one greater had been born other than John the Baptist. But it wasn't just Matthew, I mean, excuse me, it wasn't just Jesus who thought that. The people also thought that. The people regarded John as a true prophet. They recognized him as a legitimate spokesman for God. In fact, he was the only prophet in Israel at this point, the only one that had been in Israel for 400 years. God had not spoken to Israel by the mouth of a prophet since the prophet Malachi more than 400 years earlier. And now John comes on the scene. He's a true prophet of God, and the people are responding. As a matter of fact, Matthew would tell us later in Matthew chapter 14, verse 5, that Herod was afraid to do anything against John because all the people held him to be a prophet. It was the same testimony you have from outside of Scripture with Josephus, who tells us that John was immensely popular and the people regarded him as a prophet. Later on, even in Matthew 21, 26, the chief priests, were told, were afraid to criticize John because everyone believed him to be a prophet. So here you have this incredibly uh, credible voice and witness Coming, for, coming into the scene, and he's going to give testimony to Jesus. Everyone knew about John, not only because of his ministry, but perhaps some of them even knew about his miraculous birth. You remember he was born to a woman named Elizabeth, who was the wife of an old priest. They were barren, they were elderly, they were beyond their childbearing years. And yet the Lord gives her the grace to be able to have a child, the child John the Baptist. And so maybe some people had heard about this. So we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 65, that when John was born, that these things were talked about, Luke says, throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What will this child be then? For the hand of the Lord is with him. So John is recognized as a prophet. He was probably recognized from his very birth as someone who was going to be something. There were a lot of people that would have had a tremendous amount of expectation for him. And now he sort of, 
After going into 30 years of obscurity, he grew up in the desert. Now he burst back out on the scene, proclaiming a message for all of Israel to hear that the Messiah was at hand, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He was telling people to repent, to get their lives ready to meet their Savior. So this guy represents the most credible source you could imagine in the eyes of the people because he represented this prophetic class. He represented the the tradition of Elijah and Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. He represented, if you will, all the voices of the prophets in the present age of Israel. He was recognized as uh, someone called by God, someone who was credible by God, someone who was trusted by God. And so when he goes and he begins to preach, and here he is at the height of his popularity, we read in verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Matthew's not concerned about telling us how Jesus heard about John's ministry or what prompted him, what motivated him to make his move at this point, because the real focus is what happens when he arrives there. He comes and he approaches John to request baptism, and John immediately, in verse 14, refuses him. It says John would have prevented him. The verb is imperfect, implying that this was a sustained effort by John the Baptist. He was trying to prevent Jesus from being baptized. He was trying to convince Jesus that this is not the way it's supposed to be. He was trying to to persuade Jesus that if anything ought to happen, it ought to be Jesus baptizing John, not John baptizing Jesus. Now this raises a couple of important questions. First of all, why did John want to refuse Jesus for baptism? Secondly, what did he know about Jesus? And thirdly, when did he know it? Because we have some information, particularly out of John's gospel. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 We read another account about the interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist. Uh, The Apostle John, recording this here, says in verse 31 of John chapter 1, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And then again down in verse 33, I myself did not know him, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So before this moment, John is apparently telling people, I I, I wouldn't have recognized the Messiah. I wouldn't have been able to pull him out of a crowd. Now none of that means that John knew nothing about him. What it means is he, didn't, he wouldn't have recognized him. As a matter of fact, these two men are actually cousins. Mary and Elizabeth were related to one another. And as a matter of fact, when Elizabeth finds out that she's pregnant, the, one of the first things she does is she races uh, down south to be with her cousin uh, Elizabeth. When Mary finds out she's pregnant, she races to be south, uh, down south with, with Elizabeth be, to be together. She actually arrives in the sixth month of of Elizabeth's pregnancy and she stays with her all the way till the ninth month, probably till the birth of John the Baptist. 
And you remember that sort of iconic meeting there in Luke chapter 1 when, when Mary enters into the room. The scripture says that John the Baptist leaped in her womb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and leaped. And, and Elizabeth herself, filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaims that Mary's child is none other than the Lord himself. She recognizes that he's the Messiah. And no doubt during those three months of uh, uh, that they spent together, they would have swapped stories about how the angels had visited them, what the proclamations and promises had been about their children. They would have comforted one another. They would have reveled in God's grace and, and God's mercy in their life. And no doubt once their children were eventually born, these mothers would have shared these stories with their sons. So John would have grown up hearing about his cousin, hearing about Jesus, hearing about this amazing conception, this amazing birth. He would have grown up knowing that this, this man is out there, but apparently as they grew up, they knew very little by way of personal interaction. They didn't know one another by face. They hadn't spent time together. And so back over in John 1.29, when we read John the Baptist saying that he didn't know him, in John 1.29, uh, John he says this, as Jesus was coming to them, uh, to him, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So apparently, this, uh, as Jesus approached him, the Lord revealed the identity of who this man was who was coming to him. This revelation had not come to John before this moment, but he saw him at this point, and the Lord allowed him to understand who this man was. God not only revealed to him this identity of Jesus, but he had also revealed to him what he was going to do through John's baptism. That's why John said, I didn't myself know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descending and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, this doesn't suggest that John's understanding of, uh, of Jesus uh, was completely unformulated. Just the fact that he didn't know by, 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 you might say, by facial recognition. He didn't know who it was who was ultimately going to be the Messiah. But there were these key things that God had revealed to him. God had revealed to him before he ever started his ministry or at the beginning of his ministry that he was to go baptizing and it was through his baptism that God was going to reveal the Messiah. And then secondly, when the Messiah showed up on the day of his baptism, when Jesus showed up, God revealed to him who it was. And John, and John sees him, he realizes who this is, and he declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when Jesus comes, immediately John begins to protest. He knows who this is. He, he recognizes God has made this known to him, but he protests, he protests because up to this point, John's baptism has been for sinners. You remember back over in Matthew 3, 6, this was a baptism of repentance, and as people were coming to be baptized, they were confessing their sins and being baptized as a sign of their repentance. But see, John realizes that Jesus has no sins to confess. He has nothing that needs to be repented of. And the original purpose, therefore, at least in John's mind, for his baptism is not appropriate for Jesus. So here you have the most credible guy 
in, in all of Israel in his day, a guy who's not prone to, to uh, inflate things or flatter people. He's not prone to excuse anyone's sin or just be overly polite. He understood something fundamental, however, about Jesus. He understood that there was no sin that Jesus had to repent of. He understood that Jesus had nothing that he needed to confess. At the same time, John understood something about himself. He understood that he himself was a sinner. That even though he was a prophet, even though he was one of the most recognized, uh, uh, morally upright people in all of Israel, even though people were flocking to him, and even though he was calling other people to repentance, he knew that he himself was guilty before God. He knew that he had sin. And so John understood that Jesus was not in need of him, but at the same time, he was in desperate need of Jesus. In John's mind, Jesus wasn't needing John to do anything for him. What was really needed was for Jesus to do something for John. And this is really the picture of, of true and genuine belief, true and genuine faith. This is the picture of a genuine Christian. They understand that they have absolutely nothing that God needs. God doesn't need them. He's not obligated to them for any reason. They have absolutely nothing to offer Jesus. Their good works, their good deeds, their rituals, their acts of service. God doesn't need any of them. So you have nothing to offer to God except to present yourself to Him as a guilty sinner in need of God's mercy. And this is exactly what John does. In verse 14, he protests, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me, he says? This doesn't make any sense. I'm the needy one. I'm the sinful one, he says. You're the one who has all the power. I'm the one who has all the weakness. You're the one who has all the righteousness. I'm the one who has all the sin. You're the one with all the honor. I'm the one with all the shame and the guilt. I'm the one who needs to be baptized here. John understood that. In fact, Jesus understood that. He understood what John was saying, and he wasn't rejecting John's assessment. John, he understood, was just a man. There wasn't anything he was going to receive from him. But Jesus also understood something else. He understood that John had been commissioned. He understood what John understood. That at the beginning of his ministry, God had commissioned John to reveal Jesus through his baptism. He understood what God had told him, that, that when the Messiah comes, the Spirit of God would descend and remain on him, and that would indicate the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Or, as John said in John 1.31, I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So John understood his ultimate purpose in baptizing, and Jesus understood this ultimate purpose. This was the ultimate end. And so what Jesus is telling John is there's no reason to object here. Remember, you might say, the ultimate reason why we're doing this. This is what he means in John 3.15. Jesus answered him and said, Let it be so for now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then, of course, John consents. 
Now you might ask yourself, what does John, uh, what does uh, uh, Jesus mean when he says it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness? Well, he he's not talking about every potential act of righteousness being fulfilled in that one deed. It's not as if uh, something sort of vicariously happened for all of time and all people through the baptism of Jesus. It's not as if uh, Jesus practiced vicarious baptism. What he's talking about here is it's fitting for Jesus to be revealed through the baptism of John. Because this is the way God ordained it. It's fitting for them to fulfill the plan that God had called them to. It's fitting for them to fulfill what God had appointed them to. Jesus isn't going through a list of Old Testament statutes and Old Testament laws and ticking off the box and trying to sort of jump through the hoops and, and make himself accountable in, in some sort of a formal way to a formal law. What he's really talking about here is a yielding to God, a submission to God's will. Jesus is talking, not just about himself, by the way, but also about John the Baptist. He's saying not only that it's fitting for him to do this, he says it's fitting for us to do this. It's fitting for both of us, for this is what God has ordained. This is what God has called us to. It's fitting for both of us to fulfill everything that God has planned for us everything that God desires. He's talking about the responsibility and the submission that they owe to God. By the way, this is the same way that Matthew uses the word righteousness in a parable. Later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 21, verse 28 and following, he tells a parable of two sons. And he says there, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Those who were listening to Jesus answered and they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even then you saw it, or even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So Jesus is saying to John, I understand your objections, but it is fitting and it is appropriate when God has commanded us to do something that we fulfill it. It's it's fitting and it's appropriate for us to submit to His will. And so, John consents. He consents. He knew that Jesus is sinless. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He objected because he knew that he had no place, as it were, in baptizing Jesus for a baptism of repentance. John gave the testimony to Everyone who is listening, the one who comes after me is greater than me. He knew all of those things. But he also knew that this was the purpose why God had called him. This is the purpose to which God had ordained his baptism. And so he consents. And this becomes his testimony, his affirmation, that once Jesus is baptized, that God would affirm him. And this is exactly what we see taking place. 
Jesus is baptized and immediately as he comes up out of the water, we see a second testimony here, that of the Holy Spirit. Or as we see in verse 16, we might call it the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The heavens were opened and for a brief period of time, the barrier between this world and the dwelling place of God was temporarily removed and the Spirit descended in visible form like a dove. Now, this isn't the normal form in which you would find the Holy Spirit. He's pictured in a number of places throughout the Scripture as a cloud or, or, or smoke or fire. There's all kinds of forms in which He appears, but this is the only time He's ever pictured as a dove. And this is significant for the people who are watching. No doubt they would have made an association between what they were seeing and their sacrificial system because this was the primary purpose of doves, at least in the life of an Israelite. Doves or pigeons were the sacrifices of the poor people. In fact, Jesus' own family was so poor that when he was born, when they went to make an offering, this is all they could afford to give. So the scriptures prescribe a person to make sacrifices and offerings to God, particularly for the forgiveness of their sins and cleansing from ritual uncleanness. It calls for lambs, it calls for bulls sometimes, but in the case of the poorest people, it allowed them to sacrifice a dove. You don't really see doves anywhere else in the Old Testament representing anything else, but you see them representing the poor. And so this, we might say, this represents every man. This represents the way to access God, even for those who have virtually nothing, the widest possible access to God. But the symbol here only pointed to the ultimate reality. The reality that Jesus was being anointed by the Holy Spirit at this particular point for a specific task. In fact, Jesus would talk about it just a few weeks later. Immediately after this event, he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And then when he returns, he goes to his hometown, to, to Nazareth. He enters the synagogue and picks up a scroll and reads from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of, prison, of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's, he, he's declaring what the Old Testament had promised, that the Messiah would come, and He would come with the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. Now you might wonder, why would Jesus, the Son of God, need the anointing of the Holy Spirit for power. Well, that's because while Jesus was God in human flesh, when He came in human flesh, the Scripture says He emptied Himself of all of the prerogatives of His exalted position as God. He took on the full form and likeness of man. In fact, Romans 8 says He came in the likeness of our weakened flesh. So here he is in human form, completely dependent on God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And God meets his need. God anoints him with power in order for him to fulfill his ministry and his calling. And this is exactly what God is giving him here. God is equipping him like he's equipped all of his chosen servants. Like he equipped 
in, in, in Judges 6.34, he equips Gideon when it says the Lord clothed Gideon when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Judges 11.29, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Judges 14.19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. 1 Samuel 16, 13, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward so that he could fulfill his role as the king. Even when you get in the New Testament, you see God doing the same thing, equipping His saints for particular powerful ministry. Acts 4, 8, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit so that he could preach to the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin. Later at the end of that chapter, the whole congregation is filled with the Holy Spirit so that they can preach the word in boldness. Acts 13.9, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit as he preaches on the island of Cyprus. So God is anointing Jesus for the explicit purpose that he could uh, fulfill as the Messiah in proclaiming the message of salvation, preaching the gospel to the poor, to the needy, to the oppressed and to the afflicted. And at this point, it's also coming with the visible affirmation. Not just the coming of the Holy Spirit, but the visible affirmation of the Spirit descending on Him in the form of a humble, lowly dove. Communicating to all the world that this is none other than the Messiah who would fulfill those grand Old Testament prophecies. Well, finally, we see a third testimony here to the fact that Jesus is indeed the true Son of God, the Savior of the world. And that's in verse 17, and it comes with the approval by God the Father, the approval by God the Father. The heavens are opened and, and the Spirit descends, and at that moment it says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now you talk about credibility now you have not only the most credible person in all of Israel, and not only do you have the Holy Spirit, but then you have God the Father audibly speaking from heaven. And this doesn't happen just every day. This is unique. This is special. This is powerful. And of course, what does God say? He says one of the most simple and profound statements that you'll ever hear. This is my beloved Son. We speak about God's love. We speak about God loving the world. But really, really when we talk about that, we talk about a kind of a, a, a general kindness that, uh, that comes on all of mankind through God's uh, general grace. Or even when we talk about particular love for God's own elect or God's own children, the Scripture tells us that that love comes in spite of our sin. Romans 5.8 says... God shows His love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So God shows us love in spite of the fact that we actually deserve His wrath. But His love for Jesus is different. He loves Jesus because Jesus is fully worthy of that love. Jesus fully warrants and merits that love. God the Father loves Jesus, God the Son, because there is everything about him to love. God truly delights in him with no reservations whatsoever. And why is that? Because, as God says, he's well pleased with him. God is pleased in every possible way from Jesus. He's pleased in every imaginable way. He's pleased by his actions. He's pleased by his 
inactions. He's pleased by his thoughts. He's pleased by his motives. He's pleased by everything. Everything. He's an absolute delight to God. You know, God couldn't say that about any other creature, any other human being, only Jesus. And in fact, God cannot even call you and me beloved apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are anything but beloved. As God describes it in Revelation chapter 3, we are wretched and pitiable and poor. We are despised by God because of our rebellion against Him, because of our sin and our guilt. But because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we can become united to Jesus Christ in such a way that He now considers us to be beloved. Ephesians 5, excuse me, Ephesians 1 verse 5 says that if you are in Christ Jesus, God predestined you or predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, it says, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So, so we who are not beloved, we who are, who, are, who are not a delight to God, we who are nothing but rebels and guilty and shameful, we who are under God's wrath have an opportunity to come into Jesus Christ and through Him and through the forgiveness of our sins, we can experience every spiritual blessing in the Beloved. It's a tremendous truth. A wonderful thought. We can never stand before God's gaze. We can never have Him declare of us that with Him or with her I am well pleased. But if you are in Christ Jesus, if you give your life to Christ Jesus, He makes that declaration over you. Just like He did over His precious Son at Jesus' at Jesus's baptism. At this point, it is pure affirmation of Jesus as the only one deserving of that title, the only true and sinless Son of God, the only Savior of the world. But because that's true of him, it gives him the power to make it true of you. If you entrust your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord, he makes you pleasing to God. He makes you well beloved of God. And you can hear that declaration no longer standing in shame and rejection before God. But hearing God declare over you, with you, I am well pleased. That's the gospel. That is why Jesus Christ was anointed. That is why He came. And that's why He died. So that you and I could believe in Him and find forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray together.